Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure thing. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. It's awesome to be here. Uh, my name is Chris Ferguson. I'm a licensed psychologist in Florida and Texas, and also a psychology professor at Stetson University right here in base, right, right outside of or Orlando, Florida. So nice area. So when it comes to where do you focus when it comes to mental health, any of that, you can pick a specific category or you can just talk about, we can talk about mental health in general, but I'm wondering if there's a fix and, or are we just doomed as a society? Oh, we're definitely doomed as a society. <laughs> I'm, I'm 51 now, so I'm at that age, right? You know, where as we as we get older, we become more and more convinced that uh, young people like yourselves are screwing things up, and of course, we're doomed because <laughs> because all the same people are going to die. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I mean, so in clinical work, I think I was mostly involved in forensic stuff. So you know, I did a lot of stuff with like inmates and people in the court systems. I did a lot with child protective services. You know, parents who had lost custody of their kids. I did a lot with juvenile uh, detention. You know, juvenile delinquents and 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 those kind of populations. Did a little bit with like you know, people who want to be police officers or other law enforcement officers and uh, doing assessments for them um, as well. Uh, Research-wise, um, I'm, I'm probably most, you know, famous, being a famous psychologist is kind of an oxymoron, uh, but, uh, you know, probably best known, for, I did a lot of work on violence and video games, actually. Um, so that was kind of like my, my big claim to fame. And I saw your book on that, but I wrote a paper on that in college. Um... Because I went to school originally for uh, chemical dependency, but I switched over to psychology. And then I just, after I got my degree, I was just, I never went for a master's or anything. I was just like, I don't think school is for me. Um, and I started a show where I just talked to random people every day. It's like, awesome. Hey, That's strangers. a lot more fun, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what got me with video games, uh, this idea that video games cause violence. And in my paper, I didn't think it did. But what I said is, I think if you have a natural proclivity to doing something aggressive like shooting up a store which is always the example people mention about video games could cause this interaction go i go i don't think that creates it there but i think it can bring it out i think you know if but i don't see it replicate i mean i play plenty of violent video games i have friends that play violent video games and we're just functioning members of society or at least i'm barely functioning but i'm still functioning <laughs> yeah well a fun fact is actually uh so mass homicide perpetrators the people that shoot up stores like you, you mentioned or whatever uh or schools or whatever actually tend to consume fewer violent video games on average than other men, because it's mostly men and boys, of course, but, you know, other males of their age category. So, yeah, we don't we don't really see much every every generation. It's usually old people like me. Right. So every generation starts to convince itself that whatever the new media or technology is, is bad. You know, so we can see this like historically that, you know, back when I was a kid, it was like rock music, like, you know, and I, and I mean, like ACDC and Prince and City yes. stuff that like nobody thinks there's a big deal to that, you know. Um, and then before that, it was, and of course, in the 80s, also Dungeons and Dragons was controversial. And then before that, there was like comic books. And then you actually can go back, you can find like research papers on like 
radio addiction in the 1940s and stuff like that. So it, it's just a repetitive cycle. And of course, we're now seeing it. I think people are starting to get bored of video games and they're now moving on to social media. So now is this idea that if you spend too much time on social media, which, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily advise. I don't, I don't, again, I'm probably old enough now too. I can, I bitch and moan about social media sometimes too, but um, you know, but there's this idea that like causes suicide, particularly for girls, or that it may even cause like gender dysphoria for girls and stuff like that. And, you know, and I don't know that the evidence is, is really clear um, on that. But I think that is that repetitive pattern that we just, you know, we just like to blame our problems on media and technology and, and video games was part of that pattern. I think we talk about the older generations looking at the younger generations, like, you know, some of these pro problems with video games or social media. I mean, I post in ghost. I don't use social media. It's terrible if you run a show and you're trying to get like popularity in it. But to me, I just noticed there was a really bad issue with refreshing the follower count and being very considered with the analytics. And that's not all social media. You can try and adapt it to your best ways, but that's not how social media works. Algorithms will trick you into watching videos endlessly and you'll be scrolling on your phone until two o'clock in the morning. But I think it's also that the generations above, like my generation and maybe your generation, the generation above you, it's just every single generation below us is exposed to something where like there's no the sensor that would have been there before is not there anymore. Video games, for instance, you can't say video games cause violence now because now everything is trying to expect the most violence. That is movies that are doing violence. Music, Kiss never got airtime because it was like demonic. They were dressing up as all this type. So, I mean, it, it just the barrier keeps breaking and breaking. It's like, what's the next generation going to experience? But I'm seeing a weird amount of helicopter parenting with like my brother's kids and they're like four and like three. And I'm like, is that because you guys like went through some stuff and then now like society, you're starting... Because like that's the thing I talked about with um a guy Ben Court who um talked about marijuana and he goes and I'm <clears throat> for my generation I would be probably not pro marijuana like most people are I don't care if you do it but I just think that like they're trying to make it as pure as possible it's not like your grandpa's weed where you smoke twenty joints and then you got high this is like take a hundred milligram edible for your first time I was about to have kids just experience like like an acid trip it's not good but. That's everything today is just moving so fast paced where like the younger generations, I think, are starting to kind of pay attention to that a little bit. I mean, they're thrown, being thrown right into the deep end. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could, I could say, like, you know, this is one of these like back in my day stories, right? I'm going to have a whole bunch of these. But uh, I, I, I tell the story sometimes of like I remember being like maybe like seven or eight and I'm short. So I'm still short. And I was short when I was that age. Um, so I remember like back then, this is like in the seventies, you know, and they used to have these like big Buicks, right. They were made of like a solid steel brick, essentially, you know, uh, they would get like three miles to a gallon. It's basically like a tank without the turret and they would have these bench seats. And so I can remember like in the seventies, I was short enough at that time when I was like seven, eight, that I could stand in the back seat and put my arms on this bench seat and talk to my grandparents on either side while they were driving like 65 miles an hour down the highway. Good time. And nobody thought anything of it. You know what I mean? Like this was just like, ah, just, I'm not like, not only am I not seat belted in the car, I'm not sitting in the car. I'm standing in the car. It would have been a rocket through that windshield if we'd ever got, you know, back then it was like, ah, you know, you, you let your kids out at three o'clock and maybe they come back at like nine. You know, there was no like checking on your kids or this kind of stuff. Right. You know, and somewhere in there, like there, like there was more and more shame was added on to, on to parents. Right. You know, this idea like, you, you know, it's, you know, I don't know, it's 7 p.m. Do you know where your child is? Like the like classic commercial, you know. Um, so I think that like, parents got frightened and shamed at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, I have a I have a son who's 19. So we've just gotten he's now like an adult, but we still are like, 
you know, I don't know if we're helicopter parents, but we still feel like, you know, we have to watch out for him, make sure he's okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, rec we recognize a little bit of that sense of like, you know, like it was like, if I send my kid out to the front yard, can I just like go about and do like a different thing somewhere in the house? Or do I need to like watch him like a hawk uh, every, every minute, you know, this might be when he's like 11, you know, and uh, that was something we never had as kids ourselves. Our parents were like, yeah, just like be home for dinner, you know? Um, and yeah, so I don't know what happened. Something in society really like shamed parents into the sense of like, we need to be like hovering, like I said, like helicopters over them all the time and protecting them from every little thing that might hurt their feelings. And uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Luciana have a good book about this, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is basically, you know, so that it ends up being the sense of like, you know, as a young person, you shouldn't even be exposed to ideas that would offend you, right? It's this whole like cancel culture stuff that if someone says something that hurts your feelings, that their life should be destroyed because, you know, you felt unsafe or something. Like that. You know, so that, that, it kind of comes down to the whole mentality of, uh, we've really like bubble wrapped our children to some extent, and then we send them out into the world and they can't hack it, right? Because they, you know, lack resiliency. And so, you know, one thing we do know is that, of course, like mental health problems have increased in the last decade or so. Now, in fairness to young people, that's really across the board, you know, so like people my generation are having the same exact problems. Um, so we can't say it's like a team specific thing, uh, but but we are seeing an increase in mental health problems. And, and some people do make this argument that a lot of it has to do with the sort of lack of resilience. We've tried to like protect people so much that it actually backfired. Um, and uh, we should let people experience letdowns. And, you know, we don't want them to be like harassed or attacked, you know, but, you know, so there's certainly some guidelines we need to put on it. But the idea that, you know, you can never be allowed to fail or nobody should ever criticize you or you should never hear an idea that is offensive to you or something of that sort probably backfire, at least to some extent, and may explain part of why we're seeing more mental health problems in young people today. I had a guy on my show, Timothy Jay, he's the father of swear words, and he had a he made a book about swearing. He literally studies in psychology about swearing and why you should be doing it. And he dropped some um, – I curse all across the board. But he said the C word, and I was like, oh, and that, that was even shocking to me. And he was like, the reason why is because you stigmatize these words and you give them all their power. And the issue now is, is like I've had you know, someone from like doing a JFK episode that go, God, the cursing. It's just like, hold on. Like I don't even notice it. But that, that person who's like 40 or 50 notices it, and they come from a strictly dominant Christian household, which is that's nothing against Christians. It's just like – People curse in their everyday life, and you, when you band-aid or you parent or you helicopter someone so much, when they go out and they hear it, what are they going to do? Like clutch their pearls and scream? And you know, there's a rational like way to like, yes, we did not acknowledge mental health in the past, PTSD, all this stuff. It's good that we're doing it now, but also we're kind of overdoing it. And I don't want to say it to be like, oh, we shouldn't care about mental health, but there's like a reasonable way to do it, not just because. Are you okay? Every second of the day, because then next thing you know, it's like when a kid falls, if you stare at them and they see you stare at them, they start crying. It's like, just what do you it, I mean, that's real. But like, that's like society will reject that and say, like, you know, cancel culture, for instance, backfired on Steve Irwin's kid. Um, he dressed up like Dwight from The Office and everyone's like, how dare you dress up like Jeffrey Dahmer? And he got attacked by like 15 people. And then everyone's like, yo, he's from The Office. His quote on the episode says Dunder Muff, whatever the, the company that he works at. And like they just stopped. And it was like, yeah, because now everything is a threat to what you want to be. And it's like that's not necessarily like you don't have to agree with every single person in the world. And it's kind of turned into us getting offended now. Yeah. 
it's interesting with i mean you bring you brought up language and it is interesting about how like sort of like the the taboos around language change over time now you know think of like the f word right i'm not going to swear in your podcast you can but, I'm, i do okay, it well, <laughs> some words i'll use some words i won't put it this way you know so i say like fuck right you know yeah. that's there's there's really no stigma to it for the most part and that's different from like 50 years ago where if you like you know, like I use the F word in my classes, right? You know, and kids don't care, you know, uh, you know, and that They've heard worse. But in the 1950s, right, teaching a college class, I probably would have got complaints from students, you know, because they're that was a much more taboo word to use, you know. And now you you mentioned the C word. I'm not going to say the C word because I don't want to lose my job. But, you know, so there we go. <laughs> taboo, right? You know, at least in the US and the UK, it's not. They use the C word much more broadly in the UK. And it means kind of like asshole there, you know, it's, it still has that, G, you know, that, that biological reference, but it's doesn't have the, the sort of misogynistic sting to it that it does here. But, you know, obviously if we use the word like the C word or the N word, of course, right, you know, that those were words that were much more common, or at least the N word, of course, was much more common back in the 1950s, you know, tragically so, uh, you know, but, uh, but now it has this kind of stigma, not only that if you use it at somebody, it's bad, and it is bad if you use it at somebody, of course, right? Uh, but also if you're like reading Huckleberry Finn, you know, to a classroom that now you can lose your job, right? You know, uh, and that's different from even 10 years ago when that would have been considered almost necessary to teach like racism um, or the history of racism in, in the in the US. So there was actually an example, I think it was in California of a college professor uh, and he was teaching Chinese. And there's a word in Chinese that sounds at least vaguely like the N word. You know, it doesn't mean any, you know, it means something completely different because it's Chinese, right? And somebody objected to that, that he used this Chinese word that happens to sound sort of like the N word. And he got, I think, I think fired, or at least he was removed from teaching uh, at his institution. So John McWhorter, who happens to be black, by the way, you know, it sort of advocates that we really shouldn't put that much power into a word like the N word that, you know, of course, we shouldn't use it to be racist towards other people. Uh, but this idea that simply speaking it aloud because you're reading from Huckleberry Finn or using it in an academic context where clearly the intent is not to stigmatize another person of another race, that that sort of like creates this taboo that gives the word more power than than it really should. So I mean, it's sort of interesting like how, the, how those sorts of things change over time and different words evoke more power uh, to create an emotional response in people that, you know, again, you know, the F word would have done it 50, 60 years ago, but it doesn't anymore. You know, if you went back to you know, the very idea of reading Huckleberry Finn, as you see how casually the N word was used, and it really just didn't evoke any response, you know, even in, you know, African Americans as much at the time, you know, uh, because it was just such a casual part of language. It was a racist part of language, uh, but it was still a casual part of language. So it is interesting how we give power to different words, you know, at different um, at different times. Well, we have this like disconnect with like I, w I wouldn't I think it's just maybe my generation and maybe younger generations where there's no like understanding of like intent or we just haven't socialized through communication of words anymore where it's just been all through social media so it's hard to understand what someone's describing or what someone's feeling like where we've just started I like honestly I can even agree to this and before I would have I would never talk about the Native American subject in general with anybody on this show because nobody knows how to do it properly if I say something and it's wrong I get yelled at and it's like well then how do you are going to educate like that's that's just the thing with I mean I get it look I looked through all the 60s and 70s I've seen some horrific stuff about COINTELPRO and all those programs that went on back then it can get you rised up and really mad at whatever but also at the same time there's like an extremist on the opposite end as well too where like people can get shamed for being I was laughed at for being a straight white male and that was from another 
I mean, whatever they identify as, but that was from, and it was just like, what? Like, how are we demonizing that now? And it's like, there's not like a balance where it seems like the way we try to redo or fix the mental health issue or just fix, like, be more considerate of other people's emotions. And then we just blame it all on a certain thing that was, I don't, I don't know, just being a white male or anything like that. And that's not even talking really about race. That's just talking about if you're straight and it's just like, well, where do we go from here? Because like there is a large area now of concern with male mental health starting to be talked about a little bit more. And it really wasn't before, but it's not also as focused on as just like other forms of mental illness or anything of that sort where I mean, we're slowly getting there. I think that's going to change. But also at the same time, there's it seems like a lot of the fixes we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think part of the the trouble with a lot of like these dialogues is that you know our our brains are kind of have evolved to have to really like lock into this us versus them or good versus evil kind of binary, you know. And, and there, there are probably evolutionary reasons why that is, right? You know, we grew up in small tribal groups, and you know, being able to distinguish our tribal unit from other outside humans, given the like ubiquity of violence in the human species at the time, you know, would identify like these are the safe humans and those are the unsafe humans, right? And that probably that way of sort of instinctually thinking was adaptive, you know, now transporting that thousands of years into the present, you know, we have a multicultural, multi-ethnic, you know, uh, democracy and it doesn't really work as well, does it? You know, it does, it, it causes a lot of problems with like racism and sexism and things like that. So, I mean, and I think what we see with like the issues around like dialogues around you know, Native Americans, for instance, as we've gone from a past history where Native Americans were typically portrayed as the bad guys, right? You know, they were demonized, they were savages, whatever, and that was unfair and untrue. Uh, we gradually recognized that, of course, the United States did a lot of bad things to the Native Americans, but in doing so, we've now created what sometimes is referred to as the noble savage myth, that we, we have this idea of, like, Native Americans were living in peace, and they were matriarchal, and they respected their women, and they loved nature, when none of that is really true either. I mean, there's an excellent book, the uh, the Empire of the Summer Moon, which talks about the Comanche specifically. They all killed each other. We, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they, they, Native Americans engaged in genocide. They engaged in slavery. They engaged in what you might think of as colonialism. And they took over each other's land. Yeah, they were not, you know, as, as you know, of course, there were differences between tribes, but, you know, they weren't necessarily matriarchal. They abused women, um, you know, just like everybody did on the planet. It's not, it doesn't mean that Native Americans are bad, you know, or that Europeans are bad. It's just, we're all bad, you know, to some extent, you know, and it's very difficult to recognize that, that, you know, you know, because we want this like Star Wars theme that like, you know, either the Native Americans were the, were the Death Star or the Europeans were the Death Star. And it's really kind of hard to recognize that what happened was just one of many violent migrations that happened across human history, you know, and just one side lost and the other side won, you know. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to fix those inequities now in the present, uh, but we don't need this good guy, bad guy mentality to do it. It's just there were no good guys. There were just one group had better boats and guns, you know, and the other group didn't, you know, uh, and one group had smallpox that they brought with them, you know, and the other group didn't have immunity to it. You know, so that's what happened. You know, it wasn't that one group was more moral um than than the other but but again i think it's because we get into this sort of way of thinking if you look at like everything today right like politics is like this you know there's my side and then there's the evil side right you know um uh, whether it's like different yeah i mean like you said it's like straight people versus lgbt people gay people versus trans people you know there are all these like divisions 
that are focused around anger and, and hatred. And really none of these are productive, right? Yeah, they really sort of eliminate any kind of meaningful conversation. They make everybody neurotic. They make everybody angry at everybody else. And I think that's really causing a lot more problems. And we really need to try to, you know, particularly in like a country like the United States, we need to think less about like, the white people, the black people, Latino people, the men, the women, the, the people who are trans, people who are gay, who are straight, and really kind of think of like, what are our commonalities? We're all Americans, right? You know, and somehow we all need to get into the, the row boat together. We may disagree sometimes about which direction to row the boat in, but at some point, you know, we have to come to some sort of compromise and give that a try and all try to row the boat in the same direction without thinking that this other person, because they wanted to go east when I wanted to go west, is therefore evil and should be thrown out of the boat, you know, which unfortunately is what we tend to do a lot lately. You know, we always did it to some extent, of course, but it seems to be increasing in recent years than, than, than decreasing. So I think that's part of what is making everybody a little bit neurotic. Uh, and again, I think a lot of the incentive structures, I mean, you mentioned social media, and I think that's true on social media, but I think it's true in real life to some extent too, that, and one of the things I noticed like in the last few years is that the most upset person in a debate seems to win it now, right? The person who's in tears, who's angry, visibly angry, who talks about their victimhood seems to win a debate, whether they have any facts on their side or not, you know, and that wouldn't have been true 10 years ago, right? We Maybe we should have been sympathetic to those people and, and hope that they, you know, feel better, but we wouldn't think that they, they won the argument because they were visibly upset, if anything, the opposite, right? So we seem to be giving more and more incentive to this idea that the angrier, the more uh, exhausted you are, you know, the, 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 the more upset you are, the more likely you are to win an argument. And that's going to incentivize more of that. So you get people that they're, you know, basically the, the, the people who are directing the direction of culture and policy are more mentally ill, you know, than because the people who have less of that emotionality are too afraid to speak because they're going to get, you know, as you were kind of saying, they're going to get criticized, you know, for not seeing everything in apocalyptic, you know, apocalyptic terms. You know, if you think that like global warming is kind of a problem, but we're probably not going to all be dead in 12 years. Right. You know, I mean, that's not a position. Well, solving get... it is not throwing paint on a painting for no apparent fucking reason. And then having Greta Thunberg, like that's your voice as a 13 year old kid. Like, do you think any of the politicians or any of the people think that they actually are going to like she's saying words of wisdom? No, they're it's a distraction. I hate to say it's a distraction, but like, to be honest, I don't take it. See any of the Supreme guys taking it, you know, seriously at all. They're just looking at it like, yeah, let her entertain and do whatever. But it's the things that used to empower us have now become the only things that identify us. And that's like a really big issue because when you look at someone, I don't look at you as a male or a female. I don't look at you as a black or white person. I look at you as a human being. I want to have a conversation with. I've got this from reaching out to people to do my shows. I've had psychologists say, yeah, I was always wondering why you only had white male guests on your show. I was like, I don't know. I'm reaching out to like either an email or social media profile, or I find a universe. I, there's not a lot of people that aren't white that or old or whatever that study JFK. So sorry, I can't do anything about that. But I talk to anybody. It's whoever wants to accept it and join the show. But weird how people use that as like an identity thing. And I start realizing they might have maybe depending on whatever their background is usually it's politics is somewhere linked in but they start going well this race was oppressed and like hard left and i was like look i get that but then when they message me and they say well you've had some right wingers and left wingers and it's like i don't even your political party isn't your identity your name is your identity to me and what i have as a conversation is your identity but 
people see that now. It's like they have their own um, dating profile linked up right beside someone's face to be able to see, okay, this person's this, this person's this, this person's this. I was like, how do you know if you haven't talked to the person and be able to figure it out for yourself? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting aspect of like horseshoe theory. I don't know if you ever heard that term before, right? It's this idea of like, um, you know, if you think of like a political spectrum, right, we tend to think of like left versus right, you know, and the more extreme you get, the further away. So you get deep like, state. I believe deep state, right? You know, <laughs> what's that? I said, I believe deep state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get like, yeah, I mean, eventually you get like the Nazis on the far right, you know, fascists, whatever. And then the communists like on the far left, right? But horseshoe theory says that instead of like being further and further away from each other, they eventually like a horseshoe wrapped back around. And so if you look at like, you know, again, like Stalin versus Hitler, you know, neither were into due process, neither were into free speech, both massacred like millions of their own citizens, you know, for different reasons, whatever. Yeah. So they actually kind of look a lot alike, you know, to some extent, even though there may be some superficial differences in terms of, you know, uh, the, the the underlying ideology of communism versus ideology you know, versus fascism, uh, the, the impact on the average person living in either of those societies was was in the end kind of similar. You know, it was, it was horrible, authoritarian, brutal, uh, you know, and uh, neglectful of human rights. You know, so, you know, with that, you, you get that same sense of like on the far right, you do have your racist, right, who say like, well, you know, might say, well, my opinion matters more because I'm I'm white. To be very clear, that's not what I'm saying. That's what they would say, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, and then someone who's, you know, black or Jewish or Latina, you know, they're or, you know, or maybe even Irish or Italian back, you know, 100 years ago. Right. You know, that their opinions don't matter because they're not the right ethnicity or breed or whatever kind of word we want to use. Right. So you have that sort of identity politics on the right that you know, um, it's basically racist, right? And then you, on the left, you see kind of the same arguments eventually being made, you know, that, uh, you know, that your value is somehow determined by your your race or your place in any kind of argument, right? This, the standpoint epistemology, which is sometimes called that, you know, your, your value in bringing truth to a particular argument is based upon where you stand in terms of your identity, right? Your, your race, your gender, your, your sexuality, so on and so forth, which you know, looks racist once again, right? I mean, it basically is, the sort of like neo-racist argument uh, that looks a lot like the racism of the far right. And so there is this, I forget what his name, Ryan something other is a Canadian comic that has this awesome videos on YouTube. It's basically like when wokists and racists agree. It's basically, it's, it's exactly that. Like, you know, uh, people on the far left and people on the far right basically agreeing about, you know, the, uh, the, the implications of identity politics, you know, they're more similar, um, you know, in the end. But, but yeah, I mean, there is this idea, like we, you know, oftentimes even, a few years ago, we talk about colorblindness, right? You know, which I which I get. You know, some people sometimes reference it maybe to sort of like negate real, you know, real racism. You know, maybe there really are some issues, and they're dismissing it using that argument. But generally speaking, I mean, people like Martin Luther King and and uh, you know, you know, people who were you know involved in the civil rights movement, you know, generally embrace this idea that, that of colorblindness, right? That we should as an ideal. Uh, begin to value each other for who we are as individuals rather than the color of our skin, rather than our sex, rather than our sexuality, so on and so forth. You know, we certainly aren't there yet, but I think we've made a lot of progress over the last few like, a few decades. Um, and this idea that somehow all of a sudden colorblindness is bad, you know, uh, again, I, I, with, with the caveat, I understand sometimes people use it dismissively. Um, but in general, I mean, returning back to putting people's identity um, as an important thing we should be considering, uh, I think is going to result in more racism, not less racism. And I think that is dangerous or more sexism or more whatever, 
um, then then it is helpful. You know, getting people to focus on identity, like superficial characteristics, it usually is bad and will cause more divisions than than help. It's what most people say doesn't exist, but they say it's white racism doesn't exist. I was like, well, it does. See, what happens is you're boiling down extremism to both sides. You're saying, okay, so either there's the hardcore right racists or whatever you want to say, the ones that just don't like any color but white, but then there's the people that hate or love every color but white. And then it's like you guys are both doing the same exact thing you're doing, and it's so dangerous in our society to demonize things as such. You're supposed to be able to have conversations, and you're supposed to not boil people down to their moral values. But it's like I don't, I no sides doing it right. So I think a lot of people scattered throughout the middle on like, yeah, people accept people for who they are, but now it boils down to their political views. It's like if you're a right winger or if you're a left winger, I don't want to side with you. It doesn't mean you might be racist or you might have those values of an extremist. But it's just like, no, I see you as blue and red. And now we've boiled it down to this, which is like, is this going to just be how society always goes? There's always going to be demons and there's, a, but that's everything throughout history has been a Jesus on the cross and a devil to burn. It's always been this. There's got to be one guy or one girl or whoever that has to be the person that's the root cause of the problem. And then there's one person to fix it. And I'm like, it's never just one. It's always a whole. So it's like an inevitable loop. And that's like, I mean, I don't know where that goes eventually later, but I think that's a lot of media's fault as well, too. Media has a weird way of playing on a lot of our emotions and of playing on a lot of the fear aspect of things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, bring it back to what you said about car seats and things of that sort. I mean, they also stigmatize the whole fact of like, if your child goes out in the street by himself, he's going to get kidnapped. And that was because of a couple. And it was good. Yeah, we should have cautioned, like, be aware that there is this. But I remember near where I live, there's a town that feels like it's back in like the 80s. And the reason why I say that is there's kids scootering on the street with no parents that are like six or seven years old. There's like people walking and like walking their dogs or a stroller. Just a bunch of stuff that seems like 80 sitcom. And I was like, where the hell are we? And he's like, I know. He's like, does this not feel like we just went back in time? And I was talking to my buddy. And that's because it's so rare, but it was a small community. It was very like closed off and they had their own water park and everything like that. And I was like, they're disconnected from the rest of how the world has been hyped up to fear. Either doctors are going to slowly kill your kid when you're not looking. And just so many rare instances that have happened, like serial killers or whatever, that now replicate from the media to think, be careful. Do you know where your child is at all times? Did you? And it's like, okay, it's good to be a parent, but at the same time you don't need to be up their ass with a broomstick yeah well that's an i mean you you reference a you know an important you know aspect of human psychology right which is this availability heuristic you mentioned like the serial killers and that kind of stuff too so so what happens is if we re if, if an event is easy to remember we tend to exaggerate the frequency of it you know of course airplane crashes were the were the classic example of this right you know air, they don't they don't happen as much anymore which is good but you know even back 20 30 years ago um, you, you occasionally have an airplane crash. It didn't happen a lot. I'm still know? scared to go on an airplane. So. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it, right? But it, you know, but even like even like 20 or 30 years ago, you know, maybe like a plane would crash in the United States every couple of like a big one. You know, would, would crash every every like three or four years, something like that. They weren't they weren't frequent at all, but but they were memorable, right? Because it would be like splashed all over the news and like 300 people died all at once. And this bit, you know, I'm making your fear of flying worse now. Uh, but, you know, but so it, it was very memorable. And what happens, of course, with those situations is that people tend to exaggerate the frequency with which that event happens, right? You know, so everybody is just, you know, a lot of people were like in the similar boat that you just mentioned that now they're afraid of flying, right? Because they can remember 
this plane crashing, even though every day tens of thousands of planes don't crash, right? You know, a commercial, you know, multi-hundred people jetliners are flying everywhere and they're not crashing, right? You know, so we all kind of know, like, cognitively, right? We are, we understand that you're much more likely to die in your motor vehicle, you know, than you are even even if you're a frequent flyer, basically, you know, in a, you're, you're you're really just not going to die in an airplane crash. The, the the odds are so astronomically small. We're much more likely to get killed, you know, in our own car, you know. But you know, car crashes just don't make the news, right? You know, or maybe local news, but you know, they don't get this like international attention, you know. Um, so people tend to underestimate the risk of car crashes and overestimate the risk of of airplane crashes. And I think over maybe like twenty or thirty years of the airline industry really working hard to challenge it, I think most people now do know that that's false. In fact, you're more you're much safer in an airplane than you are in a car. Uh, but that, you know, that availability heuristic is still difficult to override a little bit. And that happens with other things too. I mean, you mentioned like the mass homicides, you know, those those get a lot of news attention. Uh, so people tend to think that they're happening much more frequently than they actually are. You know, they, of course, they have, you know, any number greater than zero is too many, uh, but they're they're still very rare events, even in the United States. You know, the same thing kind of happened, you know, around George Floyd, where, you know, when someone who's black is shot by police, that gets a ton of news attention. When someone who's white who's shot by police, that gets none whatsoever. So people tend to exaggerate uh, the frequency of police violence towards black Americans, you know, so it, all these kind of things fit into that same sort of pattern that something gets covered in the news media. Um, and it tends to increase people's perception of how dangerous that thing, like shark attack, in other words, you know, shark, you know, you're not going to get eaten by a shark, you know, you killed um, more by cows than you do sharks. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Yeah. But you know, that stuff doesn't get you know as much news attention. So, uh, or dogs, you know, you're more likely to be killed by a dog than you are by a uh, uh, coconuts are the top one. Did you know that? Which one is that? Coconuts. Oh, really? I, I, I swear to you. I, I, I did this episode a, a long time ago. I used to do a spinoff of this series. It was called Fill in the Blank, where I focused on actual specific topics rather than just a wide range. And there was I was always wondering when I went to Hawaii, which 14 hours on a plane, at that point, I wanted it to blow up. Um, <laughs> but there was coconuts on like, on, literally, there was, a, there was a sign, a caution sign, like a deer, how the, you know, tell you deer are coming. And it was a person running and there was a palm tree and coconuts were falling. And this was like a real thing is that they have to let people know, like, be cautious, like, because there's like over like 200 deaths in a year that happened from coconuts. A lot of them like resorts started pulling them out, the palm trees and all that type of stuff. Because these, these trees were be above like a baby stroller. I swear this is an actual instance. And a coconut had fallen off the tree into the baby stroller. And it's like five pounds going at you like 80 something miles an hour or whatever the hell it is and it's like so i think what happens is and the weird part for me is is when you look at like airplanes i are people worried about the crash yes but what they bring the fear out of turns into hostility because when someone's on their phone and they think that hey your phone's not off you're going to cause us all to die it's the same thing when you're driving you're not necessarily i mean you could text and drive but if someone else is texting you get pissed off at that person because now your life is no longer in your hands your life is now in the capacity of someone else's which means it puts you at risk and whoever you're with at risk and i think that's how we somehow i don't know if it's subconsciously but we internalize this fear i think that's the same thing i think it's like 0.4 percent of uh shootings are school shootings but those get publicized and that's from a site called every town in america that looks like all the statistics of gun violence and all this type of stuff but we it makes it seem like it's happening more frequently now if there's an issue about it sure there should be security precautions but it's not every single day your kid goes to school i mean the issue is what's the damage with instead of teaching an earthquake drill you teach your kid a shooting drill 
where they're doing that once a week. I mean, that's not going to have your kid wanting to learn. Their kid's going to be afraid that some crazy psycho is going to come in their school and shoot them. Like, I think I did that once in like three years um, when I was in like high school. I never did it my senior year. I was barely in school, but they only did it one. Like, that was a rare thing. And I think you should teach that every once in a while. Like, hey, just in case. But it doesn't need to be a weekly thing. I think Dave Chappelle even has a joke about that, about his son going to school. What'd you do today? Well, we did a shooter drill. What? He goes, if your shooter comes in, you just zig and zag. It's all you got to do. And it's like, <laughs> he's joking, obviously. But I think it's like the fact that like a lot of these conversations, a lot of these points where there's reasonable things to bring up can't really be talked about because people feel like you're either assaulting their perspective or you're talking about something where – they seem as like they don't even want to hear whatever you have to say because someone or something that they've seen has showed them there's only this side and have never shown them the opposite. It's like looking at your history compared to the history of what other people have. It's like you're not – the world doesn't revolve around you and your perspective. It revolves around all these people. And surprisingly, I'm surprised there's not more violence that happens because there's a lot of people living here, and I don't think we realize that on like a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, a lot of that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that sense of like youth need to be protected, right? You know, that's kind of like the since the 80s, you know, there's been this, you know, emerging kind of move, the self-esteem movement and then, you know, the sort of coddling aspect of, you know, not only should kids be protected from failure, you know, that everybody gets a trophy for showing up kind of a thing, but there there is a sort of sense of like, uh, like there was just this week, there was, uh, I forget which, what the college was, uh, but there was a college where a professor uh showed a picture of like renaissance era art and it was from the middle east I don't, I don't remember what country it was from persia or you know the ottoman empire or something like that but it depicted uh, the prophet muhammad right you know so it was a painting of the prophet muhammad from the renaissance or whatever or from the middle ages uh which you know as you may know in many you know facets of islam it's it's forbidden to present you know the uh the prophet muhammad so he was he he presented this picture of the prophet muhammad and it wasn't disrespectful. It was just present. It was, I think, as far as I understand, it was just a painting. But many Muslims consider just just patently offensive to present him in any way. Um, but so he gave a warning. He said, "I'm going to present this painting just so y'all know it's coming." You know, and he kind of gave the context of like some some aspects of Islam are opposed to depictions of the Prophet, but other aspects of Islam, as you can see from this painting, actually allow you know, portrayals of, of the prophet as long as they're respectful. So Islam is not monolithic and it's, you know, uh, tendency to forbid portrayals of, of, of the prophet. But anyway, so he was, he presented this painting and of course someone in the class complained, you know, and said that they were like deeply offended or, or, or whatever. And the teacher lost his job, um, you know, which, you know, is this sort of sense of like, you, I mean, you have the right to be offended. I mean, we all get offended, you know, by stuff, you know, people do stuff that, you know, offends me all the time, <laughs> you know, whatever, uh, you know, we have the, we, it's okay to be offended by something, be even angry, right? But we have the sort of sense of that if you go into a public place like a university, that you should be shielded from being offended, um, that somehow you're harmed if you are offended. And if someone dares to do this, even though their intent was good, you know, they are trying to teach you something. They're not trying to make you upset um, that their life should be destroyed. Right. Which is exactly what happened, you know, in this sort of situation. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that that is, uh, I, I think, probably one of the more troubling aspects of sort of the cultural shifts I've seen in the last decade or so is this, you know, whether you call it cancel culture or something else, um, 
Well, it, it's it's Bill's Burr's joke about with comedians and all these people just looking to get outraged at something a comedian says, where it's like a joke. And Bill Burr, I love that guy. He says some outrageous stuff, at least because he knows it's going to piss people off. But his joke was when you go and try and cancel a comedian, all you do is you don't stop him from saying that he was screaming at him in the middle of the show, making him lose his job. What happens is he goes home to his family and then teaches them to hate this specific thing, the people that got him canceled. So you're just breeding a whole nother line of hatred down the line. I think society evolves. It's much like not every single person today is this anti-Semite or racist type thing. I've come across one individual through the whole length of my show. That kind of was, um, that was only in the JFK stuff, but when it comes to like, I mean, society evolving, if a comedian cracks a joke and nobody laughs, he's going to evolve his material. And then he's going to change on to something else and realizing it's not funny and it might be bigoted or any of that type of stuff, whatever you want to label it as. But when you a bunch of people laugh and you just get mad at the comedian, you're not doing anything but showing that you're outraged because he said a joke and you don't know that you went to a comedy show. And it makes a lot more sense. I mean, people now, for some reason, I don't know if it's just the United States or other cultures as well, too, but they just generally are wanting to look for outrage. I've seen TikTok videos where it's like a kid going, tell him what you just told, or it's a guy, a dad saying, tell him what you just told me. And the kid goes, I'm gay. And he goes, no, not that. And I just paused it there and I go, it was a joke, but I know so many people, as soon as it said, I'm gay, just paused it and just started commenting a crap ton. And I looked in the comments. And people are commenting on top of those comments going, did you even watch the full episode? No, you just put outraged at the, that little line because there was a time where you couldn't come out and all this type of stuff. But people still think like they're searching for it today so they can just scream and blast it from the rooftops. And it's like that doesn't necessarily I mean, that person, whoever might have still hold those views, society doesn't feel that way anymore. So if they go out into society and start saying racist things or anti whatever then they're going to get rejected from it. But also, like, I'm sure you probably saw the documentary, um, What is a Woman? I've, I've actually not, not, not seen it. I have not seen it. I've heard of it. I've seen clips from it, but I've not seen the full thing. That's an outrage thing for you if you just want to sit there and be like, oh, God. Because he was on Joe Rogan, and I noticed where I fall, like, I listen to some things, and I go, that's agreeable. And then there's something things I didn't think towards his recent Joe Rogan episode, he was talking about gay marriage and he wasn't pro gay marriage. And I just go, well, I mean, any, marry whoever the fuck you want. I don't care. Um, but there's also what he was talking about in the beginning, which is like this influencing of, Hey, maybe you're transgender and all this type of stuff. That's a sketchy slope because now you have a kid that doesn't know what they're going to do. And he put them on hormone blockers. I mean, those are reasonable questions to bring up. That's not being anti this or anti that but it's the same reason you, why you can't drink alcohol before you're 21 you're not supposed to you gotta worry about like what's the long and i have friends that are transgender and i can tell you they some, i think it's like three out of the four um regret it and they did top surgery they did all that and it's like so it's reasonable to bring up where you know you don't want to and it's hard to think of like what's the damage that you do when you do something I mean, if you make a rule or if you do this, everything you do has risks in this world. So it's trying to understand what is that risk that's going to be down the line. If you talk about male mental health more, you're just going to have kids that aren't going to be able to handle rejection from a job. So then are they never going to get a job? I mean, that's a large thing of my generation where we went through 15 employees over the summer in a matter of a month because none of them were like, I don't need this. And they just walk right out all because I asked you to Z out your drawer. Like it's that it's like you you're now influencing anxiety and i think there needs to be rational discussions about it rather than just like you're a bigot if you don't believe this and it's like well hang on there's reasonable points to what you might be saying or what you might be doing
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you make you know a fair point in the sense that like we we need to have the openness to have difficult conversations and understand people may have very different views. You know, even even sometimes perhaps views that may be offensive to us, but they're they're coming to it from a good faith position. You know, they may really want to make a positive change in their mind, even though we don't view what they're trying to do, you know, as a, as a positive change. I mean, you can look at like a lot of these big debates, like the abortion debate, which I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty neutral on that one. I don't really I care too much one way or the other, but, you know, or like you said, like the transgender debate, which again, I'm pretty neutral on that one, you know, as well. And, and there is this sort of sense of what makes it hard is that people believe that if you don't think the right thing that you are now evil you know and and that you should be deplatformed and and both sides do it you know um so you get like you know i mean what used to happen with gender dysphoria right is that there used to be these very clear protocols in place that if you believe that you were trans you would have to go through a rigorous psychological assessment you would have to socially transition for a specific amount of time and then you would move on to you know to medical transitions and you know at least as far as i understand the evidence suggests if you go through that rigorous process then most of the people who go through that rigorous process end up being reasonably satisfied you know with the outcome but what's changed of course now is, and some people will reference that data say look you know all these trans people are pretty happy with their transition you know whatever the number is you know more than 90 percent but yeah but that was under a very specific set of protocols you know that was they really you know, worked hard to establish that these people were, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, really trans, as opposed to having borderline personality disorder or autism or something else that, you know, they are misidentifying as being transsexual. Um, so, you know, but now we have this sort of like affirmation approach, right, where like the minute someone says that they're trans, that everybody, you know, just sort of takes that. And, and in some cases, people are put on like, puberty blockers and you know uh, right away now there are probably some people that can benefit from that and there are probably some people that wouldn't benefit from that but we need to have that rigorous you know uh assessment process in place to make sure the people who need that treatment are getting it and the people who don't need that treatment or would actually be hurt by it are not getting it necessarily but but that requires us to be able to take a step back and say like this is a complicated nuanced issue right you know and uh, we have to figure out the right way of balancing the needs of different groups of individuals you know rather than our need to feel like a really good moral upstanding person that is sort of like vocally demonstrating how moral I am uh, at the expense of others, you know, in, in many of these uh, types of situations. The same thing with abortion, you know, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm pretty neutral on that one. So it's kind of easier maybe for me to see the the, the fair points from both sides. And I think both sides make fair points, you know, um, although if you put that on Twitter, right, you know, then both sides hate you. If I say, like, I understand both, like, the pro-life and the pro-choice movement, you know, both have good points, then you're sim simultaneously a baby killer and a misogynist, you know, in people's responses, you know, uh, to you. That's the worst place to be is on the on the fence, <laughs> sort of. Uh, but, but I think that is the truth. It's like really, like, both perspectives have fair points and are coming from a position of wanting to help. Uh, and if we are able to understand that and say... You know, for instance, maybe I'm pro-choice and I'm worried about, you know, women's reproductive health and what would happen to women if they're not allowed to have abortions, you know, um, you know, but I understand why, you know, these other people believe that a fetus is a human being. And I get that even though I don't think that destroying a fetus, is, a fetus is murder, I understand that they do, you know, and from that perspective, they're trying to save babies, you know, and, and, I, and I get it even though I don't share that value. Uh, and then the other way around, right? If I'm pro-life, I might say the same thing. You know, it's, it's obvious to me that these fetuses are babies 
and we're saving them. But I understand that these other people, they're, they're not convinced of that and they're trying to save women's lives and so on and so forth. That's not a bad thing either. And I think if we're able to like get ourselves to that kind of a spot of understanding that other people's viewpoints are very often well-intentioned, they may be wrong, right? But they're well-intentioned. That makes it easier for us to dialogue uh, with people and find compromises. And I think a lot of these issues, like the trans debate, like abortion, there are compromises, I think, that you know are probably, to, to my mind, fairly readily apparent in some of these situations. But, um, but um, if you're intent on demonizing the other side, it makes it much harder to find those compromises. And I think more people and you know, there's less progress on some of these issues than you would see if we were able to, to have these open conversations and use those conversations to work towards some sort of middle ground on a lot of these issues. So. Baffles me is that you only care you only care about the people you care about, like the only people you know. You don't care about people you've never met. You don't care about – that's the thing is like there's this – weird rationality or unrationality which is the fact that like you when you go up to someone and they might not share the same view of you you might have a five minute interaction with them and you'll never see them for the rest of your life but now your whole life is going to be dependent on making them see your viewpoint and just the fact of like changing theirs to yours and it's just like look when an earthquake happens who are you gonna who are you gonna go call who are you gonna call people you know people that you care about friends of yours but there's like this large association of trying to like make sure that every single person thinks and agrees with you. And it's just like, look, I don't get what that is. I mean, it's it's like I bring up the example of the McDonald's corporation. I go, they didn't care about future generations getting obese or anything like that. They're a business. They're going to make money. They don't care about anything. Everything is going to be for their family and their grandchildren or whoever because they only know them. They don't know all this other social movements about like oh your obesity rises because of big capitalism they're worried about they're getting their peace and getting their life set because the only person who that's what same thing with me and uh like my grandmom's gay i have a friend that's gay i just go hey i'm i'm not but you know what go ahead it's your life i'm not going to control it i'm not going to be a roadblock and whatever you want but then forcing it on people is like a is another issue as well too i mean when you speak to your students do you find that a lot of them like question like any of these giant controversial subjects or bring any you know points that make you think a little bit about some of these views yeah i mean i think the good news you know um in the being in the position of you know being a university professor is that most students are pretty open-minded i mean there is this kind of uh caricature of you know whatever gonna gen z whatever we're gonna call you know of, of being like hyper progressive and moralistic and i actually don't find that most students are like that i mean sure you know gen z is more progressive than older generations are but that's just kind of normal you you guys will become more conservative as you age too you know that's just kind of like how it goes I, the the boomers you guys hate were the other like super woke generation actually you know so uh they were like the the hippies and all that kind of stuff so but as we as we get older we get more conservative so you guys you know are hyper progressive now um but that's because you don't have mortgages or car payments or children you know and once that happens you'll start to see the values of conservative politics well that's a that's a famous quote is that um yeah show me a young man who's not a liberal i'll show you a man with no heart show me an old man who's not a conservative i'll show you a man with no experience yeah and but it's, it's scientifically true i mean like it's empirically validated you can see that progression it doesn't mean that everybody becomes like a you know a maga trump fan or anything like that but it's, it's just you kind of shift a little bit you know um but uh but, but of course there's nothing necessarily wrong with being like super progressive but you know and, and a lot of students are but they but they do 
appear to be mostly open-minded. I mean, you know, what, what I think has happened to a lot of students is whether it's through social media uh, or through K through 12 teaching, you know, I don't necessarily know exactly where, where the origins of it. Yeah, they do get taught a lot of things. So you may take a student who believes that, for instance, the United States was like the epitome of slavery in human history, right? You know, pre-1865. Um, I'm going to get my century wrong there. Um, and uh, But the reality is it's not. I mean, you know, the slavery existed in every single society everywhere on the planet from the Comanches to the Chinese to, you know, African kingdoms to Europe. You know, uh, it was every, like Hawaiians, you know, enslaved other Hawaiians. It was, you know, people were terrible. You know, and if you tell if you tell like I was saying kids, you know, they're adults, but you know, you tell college students this, they're like, oh, I didn't realize Native Americans kept you know black people as slaves. I didn't realize black people kept Europeans as slaves. You know, and so on and so forth. This was you know, once you tell them, they're like, oh, okay, well, that does change the picture, you know, a little bit. So I think I think most students are are pretty open minded, and they just haven't been told stuff. You know, and that's just kind of how it goes, right? Well, you know, Steven Crowder <laughs> doesn't show that in any of his videos. Crowder goes on those campuses and makes every college campus look like a fucking woke nightmare. Yeah, but it, it, that's, yeah, they could be selected. Well, but what, what I was going to say is, you, but on the other hand, you do get the 5%. I mean, you know, maybe, well, whatever. I'm making that number up a little bit. But it is like a single digit percentage of the, the college students who just can't handle it. it that, you know, they believe that, racism is the worst it's ever been in the united states that racism doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet um that you know uh that somehow we invented slavery uh, or europeans invented slavery that colonialism is something only europeans ever did you know all this kind of nonsense um and unlike 95 percent of kids when you tell them like well you know colonialism is something that everybody did on the planet up until the mid-20th century really is the end of colonialism you know but you know, like literally Hawaiians did it to other Hawaiians. That's the whole history of why there's only one name for the whole cluster of islands is, you know, the big island colonized all the other little ones, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, so, you know, they can, you know, most kids can go, you know, they can, they can assimilate it, right? They can go, oh, so humans really are just globally bad. You know, it's not like our, our nation is bad, you know, um, but there are the 5% that, uh, you know, I'll be honest, Tend to have mental health problems, you know, um, and they tend to have personality, you know, disorders and, and things like that, you know. So they're struggling in many respects. In fact, I'm working on a, I'm, I'm you know, just actually wrote up a, a research study now looking at kind of like left wing authoritarian beliefs in adolescence, so like 13 to 18. Um, and it's, and I'll be very blunt, it's mostly girls. Um, and it's mostly girls that have mental health problems and tend to view themselves as victims, you know. Uh, so that is that's like this cluster of it's not all girls, it's not even the majority of girls. It's a cluster of girls um, that are sort of driving this, and a few boys. Um, and they tend to be the ones that are the most extreme in terms of their adherence to these kind of left wing views. And they're the ones that believe that if you challenge those views, then you must be destroyed, you know. But the problem is is not that these people exist. I mean, they always have existed, you know, probably, but it's that now in more recent years, university administrators live in such terror of them that they tend to cater to their, you know, their outburst. So 10 years ago, if someone filed a spurious complaint about racism, administrators would have waved it off, you know, unless you had evidence that, you know, a person said a racist thing to you, you caught it on, you know, um, uh, audio tape or something of that sort. Um, you know, if it was obviously 
the teacher just didn't give you a good grade and so you're blaming on a race or something like that then you know they, unless you had evidence they, they they would sort of wave it off you needed evidence it's due process right you know now the simple fact you make the accusation is enough to destroy a career you know you don't need evidence i had a i had a guest on my show elizabeth weiss um she was on michael Shermer's show um she was an archaeologist who was studying Indian burial grounds, and when they got back from COVID, she took a picture with one of the skulls and said, I'm happy to be back at my job, you know, going through and, you know, writing down the recordings of these remains. Woke mob attacked her, um, canceled her. She's, I think she wrote a book about it and everything, but she's still – she was being attacked until at least the last time I heard from her a couple months ago. Um, but they got her fired from her position there. Uh, the university was like, this is just too big of a scandal. You have to go. And then not only did they do that, they destroyed all the documentation they had got from those bones after like two years of work before COVID and then like a couple months in after – I think this uh, – she, she's back on my show like a February. But I mean after everything opened back up, bam, just – I mean only a couple months in. All that work, trash, burn it, destroy it all, and then return everything back to the thing. And it was just like – I mean they locked her out of her lab. They did a bunch of stuff where it was just like – you can put the bones back. That's fine, but you're going to destroy all the doc. It's like the Numbrig trials. Like even they understood, like you can't undo what happened to them. So keep the research. I mean, morally it's going to suck, but I think at the same time, it's like, what good does it do? You just, you basically just did nothing. You just went in a loop. I mean, the damage is done. You have the recording and documentation of it, but they destroyed that. So it was like, where do we draw a line of like, what's, you know, where do you go? What do you do without, you know, offending? And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I think if the families were upset that you were digging up their parents' bones, yeah, okay, yeah, then obviously make it right. But destroying documentation and research and then blaming one person, they said, oh, she was glorifying the Native Americans' deaths by taking a picture with the skull. I was like, man, what people see in photos, holy shit, I did not get that from the photo. I kind of looked at it like, oh, she's happy to be back in the lab, but some people peel back that onion a little bit too far, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm happy to put it on record and say, if archaeologists dig up my bones in 500 years, you're, they're happy to put, I'm happy to have them put them on display. I just want to be in one of those poses, like I'm a bear, you know, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> make me look more, more threatening than I actually am. Uh, you know, uh, don't call me like sleeping man or that kind of stuff, you know, which is probably more true. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think part of my concern with some of that too is, yeah, like I understand the argument that like, you know, the, particularly if the bones were removed from, you know, land that was sacred to, you know, certain tribal units and it should be restored to them. I, I'm pretty open to that argument. Um, I think that what's sort of happening with some of these situations, like I said, the destroying of records and stuff too, is, and I think this has become more pronounced actually in Canada than the United States, although not, that's not a defense. I think we're just, you know, it's a degree of extremes, not that we're wonderful in our track record on this sense, but, but Canada has gone down this complete rabbit hole of like, like creationism almost, but as it applies like indigenous cultures. Now we should respect indigenous cultures, right? We shouldn't stigmatize them or make fun of them or their beliefs or anything of that sort. But there is this almost like this fetish, fetishization of the of, of some of their beliefs, right? You know, that if you come up with evidence that a Native American tribe was not on a piece of land since time immemorial, whatever that means, you know, that this is somehow bad, right? You know, if you can show that they migrated in and kicked some other group out or destroyed them or whatever, that this is conflicting with the sort of creationist myth of you know, Native Americans being on that land since the beginning of time. It, it sounds, in some ways, you know, some of the beliefs do sound a lot like creationism, which is why I use that 
um, that, that argument. But, you know, we roll our eyes at Christian creationists. And yet, in some cases, it does seem like, you know, some of the problems with archaeology right now are occurring. Like I said, the destruction of data seems to be, you know, in defense of this kind of Native American creationism, you know, which, again, we shouldn't make fun of people's beliefs, but we don't have to endorse them in an academic community either. You know, we should still be in the pursuit of truth, you know, um, and and knowledge. And if we have information that points in a particular direction, whether it's psycho psychologically or archaeologically or, or medicine or something else, then we should be honest about that, even if that conflicts with someone's beloved narrative, whether they're Christian, Muslim, um, Native American, Indigenous, or or something else, you know, um, that it's not our business to make people feel good about their cultural beliefs. It simply is to tell the truth as best we possibly can. Well, you, you can't know, so. popularize the culture either. I mean, there's a video of a guy wearing one of those um, ponchos, and he went up to a bunch of kids on campus, and he was like, does this offend you? Or they go, are you Mexican? And he goes, no. And he goes, yeah, then it's offensive. Take it off. And then he went up to like, he went into Mexico and asked people, do you care about this? Like, no, yeah. <laughs> You're perp that's our culture. Good job. I mean, thanks for, you know, but that's the whole thing of like culture in general is supposed to be shared. And, and that's the an issue with, I mean, yeah, you can have American history classes are fine, but when you start labeling things, white history, black history, and all this, it's like, it's good to understand and influence into history in general. Cause I think everyone loses aspect when it comes to skin color. And it's not just here. It's in China. China, everyone in China looks at other Asian ethnicities and, you know, they have different class structures based on the, just the shade or whatever. I don't know what it is. They some of them look at Koreans differently, Vietnamese differently, Japanese differently. Um, but that's for us over here. It's like, it's just like this weird thing that needs to be identified, needs to be focused on, and then needs to be like a hundred percent influence. So it's like, why are you even acknowledging that the person is of a certain ethnicity? They're a human being. They still, you know, they eat just like normal people they drink just like normal people it's like whatever i'm in class like i mean most of my dating relationship has been uh not white girls so i mean i don't even see that i see people that i like and i want to ask them out and then that's how it goes but that's not how everyone goes now right yeah yeah it's, true. it's actually uh, you know one of the recent mass uh, homicides uh that occurred about a year ago it was like spring of 2022 um uh, involved, it was an issue, I mean, it didn't get much press, you know, uh, because it involved a Taiwanese church, uh, and it was in California. Um, so the church, so this is something I didn't know. Apparently, there were actually two ethnic groups in, in Taiwan. So there are like native Taiwanese uh, who've been there for centuries, and then there are mainland Han Chinese who came during the Chinese Civil War, you know, so when, you know, you know Kang, Chang Kai-shek you know, and as nationalists came fleeing from Mao Zedong, you know, they they landed with a bunch of Han Chinese. Uh, so apparently those two groups don't get along, you know. Um, and uh, so what happened in this this case of uh, a mass homicide at a Taiwanese church is, of course, you know, a, a, a perpetrator broke into the church and started killing everyone. I don't know how many people killed in the end, but, you know, a significant number of these Taiwanese um, churchgoers were killed. And in, initially got covered as an anti, you know, Asian hate crime, which it was. It was an anti-Asian hate crime. Um, the problem was it turned out that the perpetrator was also Taiwanese, you know, so, but he was of the different, I forget which one, I don't remember who, you know, but he was of the different ethnic Taiwanese than the, than the rest of the churchgoers was. So it was a hate crime. It was an anti-Asian hate crime, which was perpetrated by another Asian gentleman, or I shouldn't say gentleman, he killed a bunch of people, but but you get the point, you know. Uh, so, and then of course the news media just dropped it. It's just like, at that point it didn't fit the narrative anymore and everybody just like killed it. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, you know, whether we call it racism or ethnocentrism or, or whatever else, I mean, it's, it's a horrible part of the human condition, but it certainly is something that is that is global. And again, I think that if if we're going to like really talk about like racism or or other forms of of, of um, hate or bigotry, that we need to be able to recognize this global scale and put it into context, right? Because I think what we're doing now is we're telling um, you know people in the U.S. Uh, that this is, this is something that the U.S. does specifically, and then that's just well, I think what we're again, I think we're sort of naturally inclined to be bigoted, which is a very pessimistic thing for me to say. But I think what we do is we simply say, well, it's wrong now. We recognize to be bigoted against like black people or Latinos or Asian people, right? So now I'll just be bigoted against Republicans instead, you know, or if I'm Republican, I'll be bigoted against Democrats. You know, we're we didn't really change, right? We're still bigoted. You know, we just like just change the 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 good people and the bad people around uh, a little bit. And I think the challenge is somehow figuring out a way to get entirely beyond that process of prejudice. You know, we we don't want to simply change the groups we're prejudiced against. Uh, we want to figure out how to to have less prejudice in general and understanding other people can be different politically, morally. Uh, in terms of the moral values, you know, ethnically, gender, sex, you know, sexual orientation, et cetera, and still have the same value that that we do, which is in the U.S. Constitution, right? But but, but we have trouble actually putting it in, into application because it goes against our, our, our nature, I think, to some extent, unfortunately. I think it should be talked about if the conversation goes there, but I just don't think it needs to be the whole conversation. Um, I've noticed that a lot. Like I, like I said, my ADHD, I don't see the filter of Republican, Democrat, any of that type of stuff. I'm kind of just looking at you as an individual person that's going to share their perspective with me. But a lot of people don't see it like that. A lot of people want to analyze and try like I find a – it's like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like you're trying to guess the fucking ending, and it's like it's not going to happen, man. He's not going to – you're not going to be able to guess it. You're not going to be able to assume this person views this or that. Just talk to him and figure it out. And I mean I, maybe – that, that that might just i mean honestly i'm happier if it's bigotry towards left and right rather than race and all that because that's a little bit more simple um just because i mean for me i believe deep state so i'm agnostic on the on both of those um but i, I mean that is just everything that social media right now has been a political landmine field so i mean but that's also dangerous because it also shapes your views depending on who you're listening to if you're listening to tucker carlson or if you're listening to anderson cooper or if you're listening to that it's just like I mean, the best thing you can do is honestly just go out into the world and experience it for yourself and realize like there's people I've been a minority in every job I've ever worked in. So it's like, you know, there is a bit of halt to open up to me. But then once you see like you kind of boil it down from just a white kid, you kind of go down. To, OK, this is just a kid or it's just a person, on you know, and develop a relationship from there. I mean. I, I don't know how to give that advice to people. I just think that a lot of the my generation and maybe a little bit older than my generation are starting to kind of instill that into kids being born now. I see like my nephews are kind of following this protocol of like they're just people. I just talk to people, talk to, you know, used to be able to, um, my dad had a friend who was a short person, you know, like a, a dwarf and let me ask questions. She was happy to answer any questions. And I was like five or six at the time. It was over like that. I don't have any fear. I don't have anything like that. I just had questions. And that's like, I've seen kids do that. I know comedians, uh, Brad, I, I forgot what his last name is. He talks about doing that. Like he wants kids to come up to him and ask him questions about the type of stuff. It's like, cause you demonize it and then nobody wants to talk about it. Then they're scared or they just refuse to acknowledge. It's like, no, they're just people. And it's like, that's 
anything a university teacher can do, you know, but I mean, at this point now, I mean, at, at this point, whenever a kid rebuttal rebuttals you um, over something like race or anything like that, I mean, the best thing you could do is just move on to another topic. Cause I've, I mean, I know a university professor in Maryland that um, I think it was like two years ago, got a rumor that he was doing something or teaching history in a racist way or something like that. And he was put on administrative leave for four months. And I'm like, well, at this point, you're causing people to lose their jobs. It's like, what did they actually say? And you find out it was just, you know, teaching something about, I don't know, the government doing something in another country. And it's like, well, it's a factual thing. It doesn't mean he's being bigoted. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the tricky thing. I mean, of course, you might say there there always are going to be some extreme cases. You know, if, if you're harassing a student or you're you know you're punishing them, you're giving them lower grades because of their ethnicity, then obviously that's beyond the pale. Harvard uh, and college with Asian students. <laughs> well, I say that again. Harvard and college with Asian students. They well, yeah, well that'll be that'll be decided at the Supreme Court. I, I mean, I guess that's nuts to me. All the direction that they're going, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there you again, you can see how you know I don't even know if good intentions is. I'll, I'll be generous and say good intentions, but you know the idea of um, fixing racism by being racist, basically, right? You know, just a different group is, um, you know, and, and the, I mean, to, to to people's credit, I don't, I think like the polling on this is that the majority of people of all ethnicities, you know, black people, Latino people, you know, maybe even the groups you think would benefit from this are opposed to it. You know, they they. They don't want to be seen as benefiting from an unfair practice either. You know that whoever gets the good grades should, you know, be or the good marks on a standardized test should be admitted. Um, it happened when I went to college. The the counselor was like, "You can either take this class next year, and then we can get you into Salisbury University, which is like, I mean." It's uh, average college, but then there's another one where I could go to school for free, but I would be a minority. And I was like, well, why would I wait, wait a year to go to the other college? Why don't I just do the one for free? He was like, well, you'll be a minority. It's, you know, largely. And I'm just like, the fuck I care. It's free. Are you kidding me? They're going to basically pay me to go there. Fucking sign me up, dude. What are you talking about? But I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how some people think maybe some people would be taken off by that and want to wait a year. I have no clue. But I mean, I don't think that's largely the thing. The general public, if you ask the college kid, you know, where they want to go to college to for a college after wait a year and then pay the tuition or go to the school for free right now. I think most kids are going to pick the school for free right now. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, you know, I actually worked in uh, Laredo, Texas for eight years. I worked at university there in Laredo, Texas is 95 percent Mexican, Mexican-American. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you say. I mean, yeah, you kind of go down like, well, this is going to be a different culture. I'm going to be the minority, you know, people are going to like me and sort of stuff. And then you get there and as long as you treat people with respect, they treat you with respect and they don't care, you know, that, you know, there may be occasions when, Hey, I grew up in Rhode Island. That's where I grew up. You know, it's, things are a little different there culturally than here. And it's sort of interesting to talk about it a little bit, but for the most part, you know, the, the kids listen to rap and heavy metal and, you know, and uh, they ate pizza. You know, I mean, the, the, the differences were, you know, you kind of think like, wow, I'm going to meet a whole different like culture. And I think, yeah, I think they're mostly the same, you know. Um, yeah, I think they called me sir more than anywhere else I've ever been. But that was really the only thing, you know, that was like super, super striking. So uh, maybe they were a little quieter, and more respectful, but, you know. For the most part, they were just kids, you know what I mean? So, um, and people were just people. And I think, you know, the more we can try to adopt that attitude of, you know, you know, going and being around people who superficially look different from me doesn't mean that they 
on uh, a basic level necessarily think different from me on most things, I think can be very helpful. You know, they want to get ahead. They want to get a good job. They want to get married, have kids, be safe, you know, from crime and all the same stuff that I yeah, eat pizza, listen to heavy metal or rap or whatever. Yeah. They want to do all the same things I want to do for the most part. Um, and yeah, there may be some superficial differences culturally or physically, um, but those are so small compared to all the things that we share. If we could and, boil it down to sports team would be great. I live near Baltimore and when I wear a Ravens Jersey, it's everybody's a Ravens fan in the stadium. So it's just like, yeah, there's no, <laughs> and there's no race kit gets involved in that. It's we're all Ravens fans and we're going to mess up any Steelers fans. So it's like, look, I mean, I, we're not gonna be able to solve race in a podcast, obviously, but I think, you know, talking about it, at least, you know, I mean, psychology is probably one of the most interesting things because there's always something new or there's always something, you know, you're trying to understand, or, you know, I've looked into so many different various aspects of it and I don't know, people fascinate me, all people of all kinds. Um, yeah, I like the interest. I like where people, you know, what they're interested in and what they interested in teaching others as well, too. Um, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I know we didn't get into any of the video game stuff, but I didn't think we were talking about race and all that type of stuff. But, <laughs> I'm, you know, I mean, it's it, it, interesting conversation for sure. I don't think a lot of it gets said because a lot of it gets stigmatized so much, which is like, how are we going to understand it if we don't talk about it? But right, you gave me right. enough of your time, man. Is there a place where people can find your links? Uh, absolutely. So I have a webpage, which is not very original. It's just my name. So it's ChristopherJFerguson.com. Uh, and I've got a few books out if people want to find them on Amazon. My latest one is uh, Catastrophe, the Psychology of Why Good People Make Bad Situations Worse. So I mean, and in the book is a lot of stuff we were talking about, everything from airplane crashes to sort of race and all that kind of stuff, too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, help put my kid through college, uh, buy some of my books. And uh, people want to connect with me on Twitter. It's just, again, my initials and name, CJ Ferguson, 1111 at Twitter, you know, whatever the, 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 their thing is. Um, and uh, Twitter's kind of a hellhole, but uh, let's let's enjoy that hellhole together. <laughs> I'll link it all in the description, man. I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on the show. And thanks for listening to this episode of How 